Man, what's going on, church? It's so good to be back with you. I didn't know if I still had a job here. I just showed up this morning. I figured I'd prepare a sermon and just act like I knew what I was doing, and eventually I'd get to preach or not. Maybe Jacob's in charge now. I'm not really sure. But hey, we're here. We're back with you guys, and it's so good to see you. And uh, man, I just want to reiterate what Jacob said. And uh, we love you guys, and we appreciate your prayer for us, for Rachel, for Brooklyn, for our family. Uh, and for Jacob and the Stevensons, but it's not just us. You guys have taken care of so many families in our church that have been out sick and with COVID. I just want you to know as your pastor how much that means to me, that you would be the church, that your love for Jesus and Jesus's love for you and Jesus is using you does not, it's not contained by this room. It's not contained by this pipe and drape, but you take it out of this room and you are Jesus in other people's lives. And that's pretty incredible. So church, thank you. It's also really incredible for me that, to me, that me and Jacob and Alan were all out at the same time. It's just really interesting how that worked out. And the church is unstoppable. It was always our goal, long term, however long it took, that we would be a church in the community, for the community, and one day by the community. And then here we are in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of COVID, and that's exactly what takes place. So church family, whether you're on a serving team or whether you just showed up to serve or whether you showed up to worship and you, you took it out of these four walls, thank you for being a part of the body of Christ. Thank you for this meaning so much more than just coming and sitting and worshiping and coming and, and hearing a sermon. You guys are incredible, and I'm so proud of you. I love you, and I'm so proud of this church and what you have made it. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. We are entering into a sermon series called Dangerous Prayers, and as we are talking about dangerous things, today we're kind of talking about God searching us, and so I had to search my life, and I wanted to come up with the best, most dangerous story that I could to intro into this series, and I realized I'm just the boringest dude (laughs) ever. I've got a pretty mediocre life when it comes to danger, and uh, so I think The most dangerous thing that I've ever done, if you take mission trips and everything else out of it, you know, physical danger had to be in fifth grade in downtown Plano in Texas. And there was a skate park, and this was a legendary skate park, and it was called Eisenberg's, okay? And if you you had A's and B's on your report card, you could get in for half price, and that's probably the only reason I made it out of fifth grade was because of Eisenberg's. My reading level stopped there. I just kept going. They're like, we got to get this guy out of school. So I don't know, maybe he'll do something one day with his life. So I go in half price. I definitely wasn't paying full price. I meet all my fifth grade buddies up there. I got some brand new K2 inline street skates. And so what that means is it's four wheels and then there's a little space in the middle so you can like jump up on a rail and grind it and then jump off and and land. And so that was my goal for the day. Um, I just never really came up with enough guts to actually make that happen. You see, what I realized is when I met all my buddies in fifth grade, and we were kind of skating around, and I'm going up the little ramps, and I'm going back down. I was like, man, I'm kind of getting the hang of this little inline skate thing. It's way different than the skating rink. They don't play Backstreet Boys here, and I I I can't skate dance faster when Backstreet is back all right and so (laughs) what I decided is I've got to impress my friends they need to know who the best skater here is and they were all way better than me 
But my goal was to impress them, because if I impressed them, then when we got back to school on Monday, as soon as recess happened, they were going to tell all the cute girls, okay? (laughs) We didn't have Instagram back then. We didn't have Twitter. We couldn't just take a little video, and all the cute girls in fifth grade be able to see it. They probably wouldn't be able to have social media then anyway if their parents were good. All right, that's just for me. I don't know about you and your family. That's just me. It's not biblical. It's just me. So... I don't know what my plan was, that somehow these other fifth grade boys were going to tell these other fifth grade girls. I wasn't looking at them as competition, which I should have been. I was looking at them as, hey, we're boys, you're on my team. I am going to do something amazing today, and then I'm going to be a legend on the playground. That's the thing about danger, right? The thing about danger is high risk, high reward. And in terms of getting any girlfriend you want at recess in fifth grade, high risk, highest reward, okay? I was about to be so popular. So, I'm skating, I'm skating, doing the ramps, never grinding, because I was basically this size in fifth grade, just a lot skinnier. Uh, A lot of snacks and cafeteria meals in between. So, I'm like, okay, what are the other guys doing? And and how can I one-up them? And so, there is this ramp called the vert ramp. Maybe you've seen it on the X Games probably the same exact one that I did. Uh, It just goes down like this. It's basically just a straight drop, and it starts to curve, and it kind of flattens out, and it goes back up the same way on the other side. And so my friends were kind of just like, all right, we got got to do the vert ramp before we get out of here. This is going to be the most epic, legendary part of our day. And so just being the great leader I am, I said, all right, boys, I'm going to do it first, though, okay? And that way, you know, whenever the girls at recess asked, they would know it was my idea. So I, I climb up to the top of this vert ramp, and the way that they work is there's a rail on the side, and you kind of just put your skates over the edge, maybe so you can back up, maybe so you can commit. And I'm thinking to myself, I might die. <laughs> but this is, I'm going to go down in flames of glory, and this is going to be great. And so my skates are halfway off of this ramp, and I think, okay, so how does this really work, you know, like, with the human body? And so i got to go down, my body's like this, and then i got to get it up to here, but then I've got to brace myself to get back up on that side. So it's like, you know what, I'm just overthinking it, I'm just going to go. And so I went down, killed, man, y'all should have seen that drop in, like, it was beautiful. Um, And then I braced myself for the part where, you know, I got to go back up, because I don't know, like 205 pounds of fifth graders a lot, so uh, <laughs> can these skates hold me? We'll find out, um, but the problem was, is I braced myself a little bit too early. High risk, no reward, <laughs> because what happened to me was my weight went down like this, and as I pulled up, momentum, inertia, I don't know, maybe that word works, uh, it just all went backwards, and so what I did was I slammed onto my tailbone as hard as I ever have. And then, thank goodness I had a helmet on because I popped my hel- helmet back onto the ramp. And at that point, I got up like a man, and I said, good luck, boys, and I skated off. <laughs> I cried like a baby for 15 minutes in the middle of that ramp. They had to go find my dad. <laughs> you want to know what those girls were talking about at recess that next Monday? It wasn't how they wanted to date me. (laughs) It was how they wanted to date everybody else, especially Drew, because, of course, Drew made it down first try, okay? 
high risk, no reward for me. But when it comes to risks in our lives, the danger is high. The risk is monumental. But the reward, hopefully, is always greater. If the reward is not greater than what you're risking, you are not doing it right, and you're probably going to end up on Ridiculousness or America's Funniest Home Videos. <laughs> but over the next three weeks, today and the next two Sundays, we are going to be in a new series called Dangerous Prayers. Our first prayer today is search me. Search me. So think about being searched. It's not necessarily something that you enjoy. It's intrusive, it's personal, it's uncomfortable anytime we have to be accountable with someone else, anytime we have to lay our lives out to someone else. It's completely uncomfortable. But search me is exactly what David asked God to do in his life in today's scripture. So if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, we're going to be in verses 19 through 24. If you're new to the Bible, Psalm, you can basically translate that to song. David, King David, is writing a worship song to God. He is writing out a poetic prayer to the choir master. So we're going to cover verses 1 through 18 in the next 15 seconds. And then we're going to spend the rest of our time in 19 through 24. So in verses 1 through 6, David writes about how God knows our every action. God knows our every action to the point that he could not fathom it. He couldn't possess the vastness of God and his ability to know everything that is taking place in our lives. It cannot fit inside of his mind. Verses 7 through 12, we see that God is all-knowing. We see that God is all-powerful. We see that God is all-present. And because of that, he is always with us. Because of that, he was with David. Verses 13 through 16, we see that God knew us even when we were in the womb. It says in the dark, secret places, in the very places where God was knitting us together, he knew everything about us, not just in the womb, but before our mothers even knew that they were pregnant with us. God knew everything about us, and he would know everything that would be to come. And then verses 17 through 18, it talks about the preciousness and the vastness of God's thoughts. And then we land where we're going to spend our time today. And this is a hard landing to stick because this is scripture that not a lot of churches want to touch. This is scripture that we really have to drill deep down to figure out what is David saying? What does this mean as far as David and God? What does this mean as far as David being a picture of Jesus that is to come and then is to return and take us with him and cast down judgment? What do we do with this in our lives? So David, focusing on the greatness, the vastness of God, spends his time with the Lord, as we should do in prayer in our lives. We start off with adoration. God, you are incredible. God, you are wonderful. God, you are so big. God, I don't love you for what you can do for me or how you've decided to use me, but God, I love you because you are so good, because you are love, because you are light, because you are perfect. He spends his time worshiping God in prayer, as we should. And then he shifts to his circumstances. He shifts to what's taking place in his life. So the focus comes off of God. It goes on to David in verse 19 through 22. He says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, 
depart from me. They speak against me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred, and I count them my enemies. So when we hear that, we think, that's weird. We don't really hear hate that much in church. I wonder what that's all about. Is this David sinning? We know that this isn't David sinning, but this is a different kind of hatred than what we are used to. So if we just take this at face value, we think it's okay to hate people. We think it's okay to cast judgment on them. We think it's okay to ask God to take them out, but it's a completely different context for David than it is for us, and it's completely different when you look at what he means when he says hatred. So to kind of fill everybody in as to what's going on at this point in the story of the Bible, this is the Old Testament. And this is under Old Testament context. This is within the Old Covenant between God and his people. And what God is trying to do is he's trying to establish his people. And as he is trying to establish them, of course, the enemy has plans to come against them and destroy them. And sometimes, every time, God uses that when he allows that. But in trying to establish them, God is trying to protect them. So David says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. These wicked people were people that were at war with God for years and years and years. People that were attacking God's people, that were attacking David, that were attacking Israel year after year after year, killing them, destroying them. And we see, looking at the rest of the Old Testament, that it didn't start off as hatred for David. It says that their, lo- their evil was met with love over and over and over. Psalm 35, 12 through 13 says, they requite me evil for good. And I think that's a fancy word for return. When they were sick, I wore sackcloth. In return for my love, they accuse me, even though I make prayer for them. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Psalm 109, 4 through 5. And so, the wickedness that is in view within this scripture is in resistance to love after love after love. These people didn't attack Israel, and David just immediately said, I am against you. May God bring judgment upon you. That's absolutely not what happened. But what does David do? He meets their evilness. He meets their wickedness with love over and over again, as we see all throughout Psalms. And then we have to ask ourselves, what is the meaning of hatred within this scripture? When we read hatred here, we should view it as intense disgust over wickedness and over sin. And not a personal vengeance that David was, had a beef with these people and he needed God to strike them down and take care of them. No. David was distraught. David was broken. David was torn up over their wickedness. So, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I'm certainly not the most scholarly. Look, I can't even say it on the first try, okay? But I do know that men like that write blogs, okay? And so, from the blog of John Piper himself, an incredible pastor, an incredible minister of the gospel of Jesus, he says this, We will grant to the psalmist who speaks under the guidance of the Holy Spirit as the foreshadowed Messiah and judge. 
not something that you or I are foreshadowed as to being where to be like Jesus, but David had a special relation in that he was foreshadowing what was to come in Jesus, in Messiah and judge. The right to call down judgment on the enemies of God. This is not a personal vindictiveness. It is a prophetic execution of what will happen at the last day when God cast all his enemies into the lake of fire, as we see Revelations 20.15. We would do well to leave such final assessments to God and realize that our own corrupt inability to hate as we ought. While there is unforgivable sin which we are not to pray for, we are told to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us and return good for evil, just as David did. This is our vocation by faith. Let us tremble and trust God, lest we fail and find ourselves on the other side of this curse. So what is our takeaway from David in these verses? First takeaway is that David's life was at stake. He talks about his anxiousness. He talks about his disgust of these vile and wicked people. And we have to realize that these people were after him personally. They were trying to take him out. When we look at the external circumstances in our life, for a lot of us, it's probably not that someone is after us to try to kill us. And in the midst of even the deepest most pressing external matters in David's life, in his life, he brings it before God. Secondly, we see that David was open and that David was honest. He let God know exactly what was taking place in his life. When it comes to our lives, when it comes to our walks with the Lord, when it comes to our communication with him in prayer, are we being open and are we being honest about what's taking place in our lives and external circumstances. Whether we've invited them in, whether we brought them on, or whether they just happened to us or came upon us. Are we really being honest with how we feel? David is asking God to strike them down. That is probably the most honest expression of emotion in this hatred that we can imagine. Are we being as real with God as David was in prayer? Or are we just sugarcoating everything because we don't think God can handle it? I want you to know something. God can handle it. And he knows the emotions inside of you. He knows what's happening in your heart as we are about to see. So let's be honest with God. Let's give him everything that's inside of us, no matter how vile or wicked or evil or corrupt it is. Those are the things we're supposed to put at his feet so that he can take care of it. And we see that David trusts him to take care of it. David trusts God. He knew he could take care of every single bit of it. And then as believers that are here post-New Testament, under the New Covenant, we need to realize that we are called to love our enemy as Jesus did, no matter what. We are called to forgive our enemy endlessly. We are only to hate sin, but we are to love the sinner. We are to serve the sinner. We are to go out to the sinner as we see the father does with the prodigal son over and over and over. And we are still called to return evil with good. So think about your external circumstances. Think about the things that are taking place at work. Think about the things that are taking place in your marriage. Are we being new covenant believers? 
are we taking up our role and our responsibility as followers of Jesus when it comes to these circumstances, when it comes to these people? And it's in this we see our first point, is that we need to let God in on our greatest concerns. There's nothing too great because God is all-powerful. There is nothing too shocking because he is all-knowing. If he knew you in the womb, if he knitted you together, I guarantee you he knows every detail of your life and every detail of everyone else's life that those decisions affected after that moment. He is all-knowing. We let him in on our greatest concerns because there is nothing that is keeping him from us. He can meet us right where we are, whether it's the lowest of lows in our life or the highest of highs. He is all-present, and he is ever-present. As soon as we turn to him, he runs to us. And the last thing, maybe the most important thing here is that we do not stop there. Our prayer for other people, our prayer life with the Lord does not stop with addressing God and addressing other people. And I think for a lot of us, it does. It does not stop with them. It stops with us. And this is where the dangerous shift in our prayer takes place. We see verses 23 through 24 that this shift goes from God to the external circumstances to David's own heart. That goes from the external to the internal. Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So we talked about being searched. We talked about how it's uncomfortable, how it's awkward, how it's intrusive, how it's embarrassing. How do we really feel about being searched? When was the last time you went to an airport? For me, I've been on an airplane, I don't know, uh, probably six times in the past year. And whether that was with my wife or whether that was with Jacob or whether that was with Stephen, one thing always happens to me now in the airport, and I think it's because I got a dad bod, but it always happens regardless, is that I go through TSA, I put my backpack in the bin, I put my shoes in a separate bin, I take every ounce, every ounce of metal off of my body, I put that in another bin, and I put my laptop out of my backpack in another bin. I'm a four-bin kind of traveler at this point. I go through TSA, I turn sideways, I lift my hands in the air like I'm guilty of something, and clearly they think I am too, because every single time I travel, they pull me out and they say, sir, will you step aside for a moment? I'm like, goodness, again? <laughs> so I step aside, and they ask me the same question every time. Sir, are you hiding anything around your thigh area? You can laugh at that. I'm very confident in my body, okay? <laughs> it's not going to hurt my feelings. I've worked hard for it. It's all muscle, okay? So uh, at that point, I just let them know, no, I am not hiding anything in my legs, in my thighs, but that's not stopping you from patting me down, is it? And it's absolutely not. And so what they do is they pat me down, some more than others, and then they send me to get the rest of my four bin stuff. And it's every single time. And you know what? Every single time, it's embarrassing. Every single time, it's so awkward. Stop touching me, okay? <laughs> I told you, just take my word. You, you, don't, you don't just take people's word in here for things? That's weird. <laughs> Every time, 
it's intrusive. When I think about my life with Jesus, and I think about, man, what if I went to this full extent in prayer just as David does? Basically what David does is he puts everything in his bins. He says, God, I address you. God, here's what's going on in my life. Here's where I need you. Here's how I feel about these things. And then he goes, and he is further examined. He turns sideways. He puts his hands in the air. But he knows. He knows that he's hiding something. He knows that there's something he's keeping from him. And then he goes to God, who in this illustration would be the TSA agent, and he doesn't wait to be called to the side, and he says, search me even further. And I think about how my life would change if I did that exact same thing. If I didn't just stop at God and then my external circumstances, but I actually asked God to search me, to test me. We see that David embraces it. We see that so often prayer is so easy when we just focus on other people, when we just focus on their sin. In our jobs, believers, hear me when I say this, stop blaming everyone else for your problems. Stop blaming everyone else for the issues that pop up. Husbands, wives, in our marriages, stop looking at your spouse as if they're the only ones that brought any issues and garbage into that relationship. Because you've got plenty that you brought into that relationship yourself. In our lives, let's stop blaming other people and past circumstances for our lack of joy. Let us realize that it is Jesus that restores us and it is Jesus that completes us. You know what the common denominator is for all of my problems? There's one thing that's in every situation. It's not Rachel. It's not my girls. Most of the time it's them, but not all the time. <laughs> it's not Jacob. He'd be like my boss, kind of, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, Amelia's my boss. <laughs> every single time, it's me. And if we flip that around, every single time, in every situation, it's you. And sure, sometimes it's not. But if all we ever do is look outward, and we never look inward, then we will never change to be able to meet those circumstances. And we have the risk of becoming on the other side of that prayer, on the other side of those circumstances. We need to turn around. We need to look at ourselves. Verse 23a, David says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Here's the thing. When we ask God to examine us, he's not going to be surprised. He knows what you did last summer. He knows what you did the summer before that. He knows every sin in your life. He also knows every incredible thing that you have done in your life. He will not be surprised, and I will promise you that. And when you ask God to search you, you want to know who the person that will be surprised is? It's you. Because you're asking God to search you at the depths of who you are. And that's not just the surface level where we keep everyone else. But search my heart, God. And he does so when he examines our hearts by testing our hearts. When we ask God to examine us, what does it say? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, which means test me, and know my thoughts. God, examine me. Put me in situations. Try me, test me, so that I may see what is going on in my life. 
We will be tried when we ask God, when we pray this dangerous prayer to God. We will be exposed and we will be notified of the sin that is identified in our life. You guys know how gold is purified? It's a lot like the same way we are purified. You heat gold up, you get it to where it is just boiling, molten gold, all right? And the purities, the impurities within the gold, within this heating process, this purification process, they go to the top. When we pray, God, search me, God, test me, God is going to put you in situations where that sin, the condition of your heart, who you are in him, and who he needs you to be in Jesus will be exposed over and over. I'm sure some of you have heard the saying, don't pray for patience, because God's not going to give you patience. He's going to put you in positions and in circumstances where you need to be patient. It's the same process over and over and over. But just like in the gold purification process, as those impurities rise to the top, you don't just leave them there. You scoop them out, and the gold is purified. You turn the heat up, more impurities come up. You scoop them out, the gold is purified. The same is true for us. Every situation God puts us in so that he can identify the sin in our lives, there has to be something that happens. And that's when this prayer comes with an understanding. And then that is when God reveals it to us, we cannot ignore it. When God puts us in these situations, he says, hey, you have a problem with anger. And you need to watch how you react and respond to these people. Hey, when you drive around Sun City and there's golf carts cutting you off left and right, you need to think about how you respond to those people. Hey, when that person responds to your Facebook post and it's not something that is like, hey, go team, I agree with everything you say and I think you're the smartest person ever, post more like this every day. Like, 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 and then they create other accounts so that they can like it too. Then we get offended. And then there's a response. And then it's an online social media battle. Every situation, there has to be an understanding that when God reveals it, we cannot ignore it. And we cannot ignore it. And we repent of it. It means that we turn from that sin and we go the opposite direction. Repentance for us as believers is not when we cry about the sin in our lives. A lot of us have cried about the sin in our lives over and over and over. Repentance is not when we promise that we will change. Repentance is when we actually change. And we change when we put sin to death in our life. And sin can only be put to death in our life by Jesus. What I want you to know is this takes time. For some of you, when it comes to Jesus, he'll take your sin and he'll flip-flop it overnight when you come into relationship with him. For some of you, it'll be a thorn in your flesh, and it will take time as he continues to redeem you and restore you over and over. It will take time. It'll be ugly, but it has to happen. If it doesn't happen, the same people that we're praying against, the same people that David is praying against, he realizes that the evilness, the wickedness inside of him he has the same chance to be just like these people if he doesn't take care of the wickedness and the evilness inside of him. He realizes he cannot do that himself, and he has to rely on God to do it. So for us, it takes restoration, and restoration happens when danger finally yields the reward. When you make it down the half pipe and you get up the other side, and every girl on the fifth grade playground knows your name. That's not the case here. The case here 
is that we are led into the way everlasting. Verse 24, and the way everlasting is the way of sustained obedience to the Lord and living in his grace when we fail. Lord, search me. You find my sin. God, I'm not perfect. I'm giving this over to you. I'm repenting. I'm turning from that sin. I give it to you. You are the only way I can be forgiven for this. You are the only way we can work through this, and you are the only way that I can come out of this on the other side through the power of the Holy Spirit, redeemed. So your second and final point this morning is let God in on his greatest concern. When it comes to us, when it comes to our hearts, God's greatest concern is us becoming more like Jesus. If we're going to become more like Jesus, we have to pray dangerous prayers. God, search me. Put it to the test. What you find in me, work it out of me. I repent of that. I turn from that. And I am going full force into the way everlasting. Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, as he is recording what Jesus says, he would say that this is the narrow road that leads to life, not the wide road that leads to destruction. So when it comes to our hearts, let's become more like Jesus. Let's surrender our hearts to him, whatever state they are in, and let us let him lead us in his way. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we need you. Father, this morning, as we pray the dangerous prayer, asking you to search our hearts, knowing that that means that we will be put to the test, that the impurities in our life will come to the surface, and we need to deal with those through repentance. God, would you be with us as you reveal those things, ever-present, all-powerful, all-knowing. We lean into you, God, as you reveal the ways in our life that are sinful, that go against you. And we ask you for your forgiveness from those things. Jesus, we want to walk in the way everlasting. We don't just want the dangerous prayers in our life. God, we want the high risk, the high reward. And we know that the reward is to walk in the way everlasting, to be more obedient in you to repent of our sins when we fail, to live and walk in mercy and grace that comes from you. Would you make us more like your son, Jesus, through the searching, through the revealing, and through the repenting? There may be someone in here this morning, and you would not be able to say that you have entered into a relationship with Jesus. We've identified that there is sin in our life, and sin in our life is when we go against God, when we are disobedient to Him. It hurts Him, and it hurts other people. And we're forgiven for that sin through the death of His one and only Son, Jesus, on the cross. If you are in here this morning and you have never begun a relationship with Jesus, you have never trusted in Him for the forgiveness of your sin to be made right with God, I want you to know that God loved you so much he sent his one and only son to die on a cross for you. That you shall not perish and die and go to hell but that you would have life everlasting 
with the Father. That through the work of Jesus and him being the perfect sacrifice on the cross that you are forgiven. That all you need to do is repent, have faith, and believe. If that is you in here this morning and you want to ask Jesus for forgiveness, to trust in his work on the cross for that and to make him your Lord and Savior, if you would let me know after service, come down here and we can talk. You would be bold enough to write that on your connect card and turn that into the giving box on the way out. We want to walk with you side by side as you enter into a relationship with God and right standing with him through Jesus. We want you to know that you are loved so much. You are forgiven. Jesus, search us. Let us be more like you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.